0: Imagine that you're in your neighborhood cafe. You look around and see people huddled around tables talking about something that seems important. Students figuring out how to connect to the Wi-Fi to turn in their assignments, and a nervous looking executive putting the final touches to their presentation. This small space consists of people from various facets of life, a microcosm of some modern society itself. But one thing that they all have in common is a cup of coffee or tea by their side. From great thinkers and scientists to artists, tea and coffee have been a constant companion throughout their works. How did they end up taking such a unique position as Universal Beverages? In this episode of The Pursuit of Prosperity, we will dive deeper into their origins, how they're made and how they've impacted society. So brew yourself a hot cup and let's get started. So, Nikhil, since you're also a fellow coffee connoisseur, let's first talk about it. How was coffee discovered?
1: So, the coffee that is grown worldwide can trace its heritage back centuries to ancient coffee forests on the Ethiopian plateau. The story about the discovery of coffee goes somewhat like this. The legend is that there was a goat herder named Kaldi who first discovered the potential of these beans in around 700 AD. How he found this was by looking at his goats who would be sleepless after eating certain berries of a tree. He reports this to the abbot of a local monastery, who then made a drink with these berries and found that this kept him energetic through long hours of evening prayer. The abbot then shared this discovery with the other monks at their monastery and the knowledge about this energizing drink began to spread. Coffee slowly made its way up north, across the Red Sea into Yemen by the 15th century. And the port at which the beans first arrived was called mocha, and that is where the name mocha comes from. By the end of the 15th century, coffee was being grown in the Yemeni district of Arabia, and by the 16th century, it was grown in Persia, Egypt, Syria, and Turkey. Coffee was not only enjoyed in homes, but also in many public coffee houses called kawe kena, which began to appear in the cities across the Middle East.
0: But it was not homogeneous all across. Different places had very different ways of brewing their coffee. During the 13th century, in the Arabian Peninsula, the traditional way of brewing coffee was seeping the coffee grounds in hot water, which was a process that could take anywhere from 5 hours to almost half a day. It was Turkey in the 16th century that became home to the first method of coffee brewing, the ibrik method, which is still in use today. The ibrik method gets its name from the small pot, which is called an ibrik, that is used to brew and serve Turkish coffee. This small metal pot has a long handle on one side that is used for serving and coffee grounds, sugar, spices and water are all mixed together in the pot before brewing. To make Turkish coffee using the ibrik method, this mixture is heated until it's on the brink of boiling. Then it is cooled and heated several more times until the coffee is finally ready. The popularity of these coffee houses was unrivaled and people frequented them for all kinds of social activity. Patrons drank coffee, they engaged in conversation, listened to music, watched performers and they basically kept current on the news. Coffee houses quickly became such an important centre for the exchange of information that they were often referred as schools of the wise. With thousands of pilgrims visiting the holy city of Mecca each year, knowledge of this wine of Arabi began to spread.
1: Coffee's history truly changed when it spread both to the east and the west. Arabia was the gatekeeper for coffee. If a country wanted coffee beans, they had to purchase it from Yemen. The authorities there were extremely protective about their coffee and did everything to ensure that nobody could take fertile beans and plant them elsewhere. The Arabs knew coffee was unique and was more or less a golden bullet to great wealth. It was considered an illegal act to carry coffee seeds out of Arabia. Enter Baba Budan, a 17th century Sufi saint from India who went on a pilgrimage to Mecca. On his way back to his homeland, he came across a dark, sweet liquid called Kahwa being served to other guests like him while he was in Mocha, that port city of Yemen. This was where he first tasted coffee. He fell so much in love with it that he wanted to bring it back with him. But since he couldn't carry it, he decided to smuggle it instead. So he took seven green coffee seeds and hid them in his beard to avoid having them confiscated on his way back. And that's how the first seven seeds of coffee made their way to India from Mocha to Mysore, in the beard of one very courageous Sufi saint. After returning from his pilgrimage, Baba Budan planted the seven seeds of coffee in the courtyard of his hermitage in Chikmanglur, Karnataka, and that became the birthplace and the origin of coffee in India. Now, that mountain range, which consists of the highest peaks in Karnataka, is filled with coffee plantations and estates that seem to go on forever. That was the story about the spread of coffee in the East. How was it in the West? Was it that easy?
0: I think it's safe to say that people in Europe weren't as receptive to coffee as they were in India. By the 17th century, coffee had made its way to Europe and some people reacted to this new beverage with suspicion and fear, even calling it the bitter invention of Satan. The local clergy even went as far as to condemn coffee when it came to Venice in 1615. The controversy was so great that Pope Clement VIII was asked to intervene. He tasted the beverage for himself before making a final decision. And he found the drink so appealing that he even gave it papal approval. Despite all the hoopla, coffee houses were quickly becoming centers of social activity and communication in the major cities of England, France, Germany, and Holland. In England, penny universities sprang up, so called because for the price of a penny one could purchase a cup of coffee and engage in stimulating conversation. France was introduced to coffee in 1669 by the Turkish ambassador to Paris. In 1683, After the Battle of Vienna, Austria's first coffee house opened, called the Blue Bottle. The Turks, who attempted to invade Austria, left behind a surplus of coffee after their retreat. The victorious officer, in fact, opened the shop and popularized the practice of adding milk and sugar to coffee. The story of coffee is incomplete without talking about its biggest exporter, Brazil. In 1723, a young naval officer named Gabriel obtained a coffee seedling from the Royal Botanical Garden in Paris. After a challenging voyage involving horrible weather, a saboteur who tried to destroy the seedling and a pirate attack, he managed to transport it safely to Martinique, a French colony in the Caribbean. These would be the plants that would eventually populate the rest of the Caribbean and Central and South America. Within a short time, coffee was growing deep into the Blue Mountains of Jamaica, an exceptional growing area for coffee. This seedling thrived and was the parent of all the coffee trees throughout the Caribbean, South and Central America. The famed Brazilian coffee owes its existence to Brazilian Colonel Francisco de Mayo Paeta, who was sent by the Emperor to Guyana to settle a dispute between the Dutch and the French in 1727. His priority, however, was to get coffee and bring it back to Brazil. The French, however, were not willing to share. But the French Garner's wife, captivated by the colonel's good looks, gave him a large bouquet of flowers before he left. And buried deep inside this bouquet were enough coffee seeds to start the largest coffee empire on the planet. Missionaries and travelers, traders and colonists continued to carry coffee seeds to new lands, and coffee trees were planted worldwide. Plantations were now being established in magnificent tropical forests and on rugged mountain highlands. Nations flourished based on coffee economies. And by the end of the 18th century, coffee had become one of the world's most profitable export crops.
1: With coffee spreading throughout the world at such a rapid pace, the methods of brewing coffee also varied from place to place. In coffee shops across Europe, the primary brewing method was coffee pots. Grounds were put inside and water was heated until just before boiling. The sharp spouts of these pots helped to filter out coffee grinds and their flat bottoms allowed for sufficient heat absorption. It is believed that the first coffee filter was a sock. People would pour hot water through a sock filled with coffee grounds. Coffee gradually began to replace the common breakfast drink of their time, beer and wine. Those who drank coffee instead began the day alert and energized, and not surprisingly, the quality of their work also improved. Maybe the free coffee at your office isn't so free after all. Coffee pots made coffee through a process called decoction which is just mixing the grind with boiling water to produce coffee. However, the coffee percolator improved upon this. The percolator works using steam pressure generated by high heat and boiling water. Inside the percolator, a tube connects the coffee grinds with the water. The steam pressure is created when water at the bottom of the chamber boils. The water rises through the pot over the coffee grounds, which then seeps through and creates freshly brewed coffee. This cycle repeats as long as the pot is exposed to a heat source creating a coffee free of any leftover grinds, meaning you wouldn't need to filter it. The next notable invention in coffee brewing, the espresso machine, came in 1884. The espresso machine can be seen in virtually every coffee shop. The Italian Angelo Moriando patented the first espresso machine in Turin, Italy. An espresso machine brews coffee by forcing pressurized water near boiling point through a puck of ground coffee and a filter in order to produce a thick concentrated coffee called espresso. However, unlike the espresso machines we use today, this prototype produced coffee in bulk instead of a small shot of espresso cup just for one customer. This espresso does not taste like the espresso we are used to today. Because of the steam mechanism, espresso from this machine was often left with a bitter aftertaste. Fellow Milanese, Achille Gaggia is credited as the father of the modern espresso machine. This machine resembles the machines of today, which use a lever. This invention increased the water pressure from 2 bars to 8 to 10 bars and created a much smoother and richer cup of espresso. Interestingly, this invention also standardized the size of a cup of espresso.
0: After the espresso, the next big thing was the French press. From the name, one might assume that the French press originated in France. However, both the French and the Italians lay claim to this invention. The first French press prototype was patented back in 1852 by Frenchmen, but a different French press design, one that more resembles what we have today, was patented in 1928 in Italy. However, the first appearance of the French press that we actually use right now came in 1958, patented by a Swiss-Italian man named Faliero Bondinini. This model, known as the Chambord, was first manufactured in France. It works by mixing hot water with coarsely ground coffee. After soaking for a few minutes, a metal plunger separates the coffee from the used grinds, making it ready to pour. But for the lazier ones like me, this wasn't quite simple enough. And that is where instant coffee came about as a saviour. Instant coffee is made by freeze drying and spray drying the concentrated extract of roasted coffee beans. After brewing, the water is removed by evaporation from the extract and it is frozen to create dry granules or coffee powder. The first instant coffee can be traced all the way back to the 18th century in Great Britain. In 1910, instant coffee was mass-produced in the United States by George Constant Lewis Washington. There were some hiccups during its debut due to the instant coffee's unappealing bitter taste. But in spite of this, instant coffee has grown in popularity especially during both the world wars due to its ease of use.
1: From coffee that took an entire day to brew to coffee that was made instantly. I think this brings us to the end of charting the journey of coffee through the ages. It has been through beards, through goat herds, through pirates, through wars, through inventors, scientists, thinkers, and now in the hands of every person on this planet. It has gone from being the secret wine of Arabi to becoming ubiquitous as an everyday drink. It's fascinating to see how something as simple as making some instant coffee actually came from decades of marginal improvement and refinement. But any discussion about hot beverages and their roots is incomplete without looking at its counterpart tea and its footsteps through time. Over to Arnamb and Shubham.
2: The history of tea spreads across multiple cultures over the span of thousands of years. Every culture on the face of the earth has their own method for making tea. Today, Tea is the second most popular beverage in the world, after water. Global consumption of tea is forecasted to reach 297 billion litres by 2021.
3: That's a lot of tea to be drunk. Tea was a tribute to the Chinese emperors, it sustained meditating Buddhist monks and it turned the British into the deadliest drug lord in history. But where does it all start? What is the earliest account of tea in history?
2: The most popular legend places its origin around 2500 BCE. During a long day spent roaming in the forest in search of edible grains and herbs, the very divine farmer Shen Nong accidentally poisoned himself 72 times. But before the poisons could end his life, a leaf drifted into his mouth. He chewed on it and it revived him and that is how we discovered tea or so in ancient Chinese legend goes at least. That sounds totally believable. Tea has a long
3: history and drinking tea has now evolved into a process. But how is
2: tea drunk around the world? In China, it is sipped from tiny porcelain cups. In a harsh environment like Tibet, it is no surprise that people fortify their tea with some substantial ingredients to keep themselves energized and warm. Traditionally, Tibetans mix black tea with yak butter and salt to form a soup-like consistency.
3: If you look at eastern cultures such as Japan, the Japanese whisk it during ceremonies. There are two types of traditional Japanese tea ceremonies which are Chakai and Chaji. A Chakai is informal with the host serving some treats and maybe a small meal with the green tea. A chaji can take several hours and is usually accompanied by a very formal meal, two styles of tea and a dessert.
2: The Russians add lemon, the Moroccans use mint and the Americans add a dash of high fructose corn syrup. The Irish and the Turks drink it by the bucket load, while the call of the chaiwala is known across India where they serve it with milk, sugar and spices. These street vendors sell this type of tea in clay pots and some people think that the clay dust actually adds flavour to the chai. The British like to have their tea time tradition of having finger sandwiches, cakes and tea. But how did tea move out of China?
3: The spread of tea around the world is inextricably linked with Buddhism. It spread from southern China towards the north with the help of Buddhist monks had become their favorite drink as it would keep them awake during long hours of meditation. The spread of tea follows along the spread of Buddhism through China and other places in Asia.
2: Buddhist monks
3: and traders moving along the Silk Route brought tea with them into Central Asia and the Middle East.
2: Tea arrived in Japan and Korea from China in the late 6th century during the Kamakura era. The custom of drinking tea reached the samurai These intimidating warriors soon fell in love with tea. They began hosting tea parties and spread tea houses and tea culture across Japan. Tea won a complete victory in Japan when the shogun Sanetomo was suffering from a hangover so terrible that he and everyone around him thought he was literally about to die. Until a Zen Buddhist priest Isai brought the shogun a bowl of tea along with a book on the benefits of tea. It cured his hangover and Sanetomo became a tea addict and he helped spread tea across the Japanese society.
3: So there seems to be two names for the drink tea in the world, it's cha and tea and they both originated in China. But how do we get these two differing names?
2: Yes, there are really only two ways to say tea in the world. One is the English term te, it's like te in Spanish or Thai in Irish or Leti in French for example. The other is some variation of Cha, like Chai in Hindi, Zai in Russian or Kai in Turkish. Both versions come from the same Chinese character. In Mandarin and Cantonese, it is pronounced as Cha. So if a language calls it some version of Cha, it reached them overland along the Silk Road.
3: But in Min Chinese, which is spoken in the coastal province of Fujia, the character is pronounced as Te. Fujia is where early 17th century Dutch merchants traded with China. It was the only port where the Dutch were allowed to trade in China. The Te pronunciation spread to Europe via the Dutch. But the first Europeans in Chinese in China were the Portuguese who traded through Macau where Cha is used. Which is why Portugal is the only Cha user in a
2: sea of tea. The Dutch brought the first shipment of tea to Amsterdam in 1610 and started spreading it around Europe. Europeans didn't quite take to tea. The price was a bit too steep for what they saw as a bitter drink and a medicinal drink. To them, it was only useful for its ability to vanquish the heavy dreams, easeth the brain of heavy damps, and openeth the obstructions in the bowel.
3: Sounds like tea was not really a big hit in Europe when it first arrived. But then
2: how did the UK fall in love with tea? The first tea arrived in England in about 1645. But the English didn't seem keen on it. They were coffee drinkers. That was until the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza and Charles II of England married in 1662. Catherine loved tea. The first thing she asked for when she landed in England was a cup of tea.
3: And spotting a potential opportunity, in 1664, the British East India Company gifted Charles and his wife 1 kg of Chinese tea. Soon all fashionable society wanted to be seen as drinking tea like the royals. And that is how the UK became a tea drinking nation.
2: But tea doesn't grow in the UK or in Europe in general. Where were they getting their supply? The answer is
3: trade. The ironically named Honorable East India Company was founded in 1600 through a royal charter from Queen Elizabeth I. It received a monopoly over all English trade in the Far East. It grew enormously wealthy and was an empire in its own right. It could conquer territory, mint its own money, command armies, make war and peace and collect taxes. In the early 19th century, it had twice as many soldiers under its command as the British army. In 1689, the East India Company started to import tea directly from China.
2: Through the 1700s, the amount of tea being imported rose significantly year after year. Millions in Britain were now hooked on tea and the tea trade with China was making East India Company fill the rich. But the East India Company found themselves in hot water. China held all the power. Europeans were only allowed to trade at a single Chinese port, Canton and China being the wealthiest place on earth at the time had no interest in British goods. China only wanted cold hard silver, which the British were running out of. So, the Honourable Company devised a very cunning plan, drugs.
3: For centuries, people across Eurasia used opium. The plant used to make morphine and heroin for its pain-killing and sedative effects. If the British could hook the Chinese on opium, then they could trade opium instead of silver for tea.
2: And what did the company do to grow opium? The Honorable East India Company began to colonize India. In 1757, the company won a decisive victory over the Indians at the Battle of Palasi, which gave them control over Bengal. Bengal, the richest place in India, worth about 12% of the world's GDP in 1700, was proto-industrial textile and shipbuilding capital of the world. Within 15 years of the East India Company seizing control, 10 million Bengalis were starved to death and Bengal was de-industrialized and converted into a massive opium field.
3: The British drowned China with Indian-grown opium. Opium was already illegal in China, but by the middle of the 19th century, 1 in every 3 Chinese adults were opium addicts. By 1840, the opium trade brought Britain revenues of 3.8 billion modern dollars, which rose to about 22 billion modern dollars by 1879. The infusion of cash into Britain from the tea and opium trade led them to build up a modern powerful navy, while an opioid crisis devastated China.
2: By 1839, the Chinese emperor was fed up. He sent an official to Canton to deal with this crisis diplomatically. The official seized 1.2 million kilograms of opium and dumped it into the sea. Soon the British gunboats opened fire on the Chinese. This started the first Opium War of 1839-1842. to British warships devastated Chinese cities and armies. Opium addicted Chinese soldiers couldn't put up much of a fight. The emperor was forced into a humiliating peace treaty. China would pay for the cost of the war and the destroyed opium. Hong Kong was handed over to the British and the Canton system was ended. The Europeans could now trade with China through Canton and four other ports.
3: In a now bankrupt, war-torn and drug-addicted China, things began to boil over. In 1850, a rebellion against the Qing dynasty was led by Hong Xiuquan, the self-proclaimed brother of Jesus Christ, and led to the deaths of about 30 million people. During this rebellion, the British and the French launched a second opium war in 1856. The emperor was again forced to negotiate. Even more Chinese ports were now open to foreigners and opium was legalized. By 1800, NFT tea was being imported into Britain to provide 1 kg of tea per person per year. That's about 600 teacups a year. Tea had now become a staple of British life across all classes. And British and the tea were
2: inseparable now. So we have talked about the history of the tea in the eastern hemisphere. But the story of the tea is perhaps incomplete without talking about one incident that happened in the western hemisphere. I am of course talking about the Boston Tea Party of 1773. What was that all about?
3: By 1773, degree sales left the British East India Company with a surplus of over 17 million pounds of tea just sitting and rotting in warehouses in England. The country's biggest and most important company was in serious trouble. The British East India Company needed a bailout and they looked to the North American colonies for a solution. Normally British tea merchants sold their tea to American traders in London at a markup who would then sell the tea to the colonies. The British government thought, why are we using American merchants to sell our tea when we can ship it ourselves? So, they cut out the middlemen by passing the Tea Act of 1773.
2: The Act allowed the British East India Company to ship and sell their tea directly to the colonies at a lower cost. The idea being that a British monopoly on tea sales in America would ease the company's financial burden. Now, it's important to understand that the Tea Act was a was part of a larger effort by the British Crown to squeeze as much money from the colonies as possible. The Brits were heavily in debt from the French and Indian wars and the colonies became the private ATM of sorts. Tea merchants were furious that the Tea Act had taken away their source of income.
3: Colonists took matters into their own hands on December 16, 1773. That night, a group of 60 Bostonians, who called themselves Sons of Liberty, wearing Mohawk headdresses and paint, boarded three British East India Company trading ships and dumped 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. This was celebrated as the Boston Tea Party across the colonies. It became a symbol of defiance against the tyrannical British rule.
2: While the Tea Act was not extremely potent on its own, it was part of a series of events that snowballed towards the revolution in the 13 colonies. The phrase no taxation without representation wasn't just a slogan, it was the result of years of unfair treatment by the British Crown, the e- The Tea Act serving as a prime example.
1: Key sources for this episode include the online resources on coffee, from the national coffee association of the usa for an exhaustive list of sources please visit anchor.fm slash pursuit of prosperity pursuit of prosperity is a fortnightly podcast written and produced by jishnu chander arnab das Bias, and nikhil nagraj if you like the show please remember to share rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform.